Well, guys, welcome again to The Grove. My name is Caleb Brazier. I am one of the pastors here. And if you've been here for a while, you hear me say that every Sunday. And maybe you wonder why I say that. We'll talk about why I say one of the pastors here today. Um, finally, the question will be answered that everyone has been wondering. Um, uh, no, we, we get to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And um, if you've ever read through the Bible, if you've ever got a Bible reading plan or gone through it, we're, uh, our discipleship group I'm in right now, we're going through Numbers. You know, in the book of Numbers, there's this just, it feels like a census report almost. Just And these people had this many people. These people had this many people. And it's like, I'm just going to maybe skip this chapter, right? Maybe as a pastor, shouldn't say that. All of God's word is inspired and breathed out by God. But you get to some of those chapters, just like, ah, this doesn't really apply to me. I'm just going to skip over. I wonder if sometimes we feel like that. When we get to 1 Timothy 3, qualifications for elders and deacons, Ah, let's get to the other stuff that First Timothy talks about, about how we're supposed to think about money and um, how we're to pray or uh, the beauty of the gospel Paul lays out in chapter one. But elders and deacons, chapter three, uh, just kind of skip past that. My contention this morning is to lay out that this chapter is incredibly important, not just for elders and deacons, uh, but for every single person who follows Jesus. The reason why I want to make that claim is because I think that a lot of the inefficiency and ineffectiveness of the church today can be found and traced back to the root that we don't have a very clear answer to this question. What is the church? That's a fairly clear-cut question. It seems simple, and at the, at the face of it, you may go, oh, we know what a church is. But whenever you begin to try to define it, I wonder how much definition we've actually put to it. How much of it are we just kind of trying to feel out? Because how we define the church will then define what the church's mission is and how the church should be structured and led. And all traces back up to that question, what is the church? I fear for, uh, for many of us, it can be easy and tempting to begin to see the church as kind of this nonprofit spiritual organization, like a business. Um, and we then have metrics of attendance and our budget and giving. And we look at those kind of like we look at the stock market to see, okay, are we growing? Are we falling? How's it looking today? And we begin to do things in order to grow the crowd. It's also kind of what we do in America. We love crowds. We love big. We love fast. We love microwavable culture. We want it immediately fast. We go through drive through and Chick-fil-A takes like two and a half minutes. We're like, come on, Chick-fil-A. Like it was two minutes and 15 seconds yesterday. You're supposed to meet me in the drive through to get this thing going. We want it fast. We want it immediate. And we can take some of that and apply it into the church if we aren't careful. And if then the church is just an organization that we just to grow, want to get it bigger, to be able to make an impact, make an impact with what? What are we supposed to do? We're we supposed to just do things in order to continue to draw people in. So does that just open the door for us to say, well, do anything short of sin to be able to get people here? Well, there's some churches who would say that. But I don't think that's what the church is for. I don't think that's what the church is about. And then you lead then into then how the church should be led. If we have a misdefinition of what the church is, we'll have a misdefinition of what, how the church should be led. If it's nothing more than a nonprofit or organization, then we'll just kind of copy and paste leadership principles from the business world. A pastor is a CEO, spiritual CEO. You have then others who act as boards to kind of help lead and function, and the people kind of act as trustees, shareholders, stockholders. And we lead with kind of that business mindset. Well, friends, I think that having a view of the church like that has led us to be not only inefficient, but also just ineffective. Now, sure, we may have, been gotten, we may have gotten really good at growing a crowd in the last few decades, but how are we doing at the mission that Jesus gave us to make disciples? Not to see crowds created, but to see disciples made. That's why we're here. And so whenever we then look and see what the church is supposed to be, we should then shift to ask a different question, how the church should be led and how the church should be structured. Not just from the business world, but from God's word. And here in 1 Timothy 3, God gives us specific instructions on how the church should be organized and how the church should be structured and led. And we'll see in, these, in this chapter here in verses 1 through 14, as Tim read earlier, Paul lays out then the qualifications for these offices and roles that should then lead the church. These offices of elder and deacon. The elder and deacon. 
So that's where we'll be then uh, today for the rest of our time in chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Uh, Before we dive in, though, I want to offer a couple clarifications. So first, we'll just walk through some clarifications. Then we'll look at elders in verses 1 through 7. And then finally, deacons in verses 8 through 13. So first, the clarifications. As we look at this, elders and deacons, how the church should be structured and led, um, I want to again say, if you weren't here last week, we looked at the end of 1 Timothy 2, where Paul lays out then, particularly this office of elder and pastor, is meant for men. Now, I don't have time to go back through that again. Again, it's both, as Garrett says, a hot button issue in our culture today. Men and women, are they the same? Are they different? If so, how do they work together? Has this not been abused in the past by the church to both silence, hurt, and even abuse women? Of course it has. But what, though, does God say? And so if you've got questions about that, what are are women's roles within the church? What does that look like? I can't get into that today, but let me ask you to do three things. One, go back and listen to the sermon from last week. Uh, Two, come tonight as we'll begin, again, looking at men and women in the church. It's a smaller setting upstairs. We're able to kind of talk and ask questions, look kind of at a bigger picture of the church. And then third, come and talk to me. Um, Grab, we can grab coffee. We can grab lunch. can talk through it and wrestle with, God, what have you said? Why have you said this? Again, generally, we understand that men and women, God designed differently. He designed them differently on purpose. When he created Adam and Eve, he created them man and woman. And he created them to complement one another, not just as complete equals, but different in design to complement one another. There is no difference in worth, dignity, or value between men and women. But there is a difference in the roles that he's given us. Just as we see Jesus' ministry on earth, as Jesus submitted to the Father, I didn't make him any less God or any less worthy of praise. In fact, we see in Philippians 2, Jesus' name is the one that's exalted. The same with the Holy Spirit is then he comes to shine the glory on the Son and the Father. It doesn't place him below in a value sense. And so we see then in relationship with men and women, particularly in the church and in the home, there's this complementary relationship. And so we'll see as Paul then lays out these offices, the elder, as then men who are leading and sacrificially servant leading the church, we see that play out here in the church and then Ephesians 5 within the home. But again, come Tonight, listen to the sermon last week, and if there's more questions, come and grab me, shoot me an email, and let's talk about it. Um, And I'd love to talk through what uh, the Bible says about that. But we can't spend any more time on it because there's lots left for us to cover, and I've already spent too much time on it as it is. So second clarification, the title of the sermon is Elders and Deacons. And if you listen to the uh, uh, Tim Reed, you may go, wait, but elder wasn't mentioned anywhere in there. There's this other word called overseer. So where are you getting elder from? And didn't you say you're one of the pastors? I'm already confused and I'm just going to take a nap. That's where I'm at right now. What are you talking about? So quick clarification. I'll just put it this way. We understand that these three words, overseer, elder, and pastor, are synonyms within the New Testament. It's three different words describing the exact same office. Where do I get that from? There's two places uh, in particular. We see these words, overseer, comes from the Greek word episkopos. The word elder comes from the word presbyteros, and the word pastor comes from the word poimen, these three Greek words. And you kind of hear in there different denominations, don't you? Episcopos, the Episcopal Church, and how it's structured with bishops and kind of hierarchical. You have elder presbyteros, the presbytery and presbyterianism, and then pastor is poimen. But we believe these three words describe the same office. Well, again, where do I get that from? Well, two places, Acts 20, it'll be up on the screen. Acts 20, verse 17 and verse 28. Paul is here speaking to the elders in Ephesus, and it says, Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and summoned who? He summoned the elders of the church to come. And Paul then shifts and addresses these elders in Acts 20. If you skip down to verse 28, he says this to the elders who are summoned. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers. There's that word. To do what? To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So you see Paul using these three Greek words, all describing the same person and the same context. Later in 1 Peter Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter 5, verse 1, in the first half of verse 2. Peter writes this, I exhort the elders, there's that word presbyteros, the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Here's what he exhorts them to do, to shepherd God's flock among you. 
not overseeing, there's the other word, episkopos, overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. So Paul in Acts 20 and Peter in 1 Peter 5 are using these three different words, overseer or bishop, presbyteros or elder, and shepherd or pastor, all to describe the same office. So if you want to call me an elder or me a pastor or me the bishop, that doesn't make me feel any more important. I understand it's all the same. Same with Jim Pickering or Abel Rivera. Please call them bishops from here on out. They will hate me for doing it, but we understand it's the same word here. Uh, Jim, don't shake your head. I think it's going to stick. I'm feeling good about it. This is what we understand it to be. The third point of clarification, depending on where you come from, you may ask, well, how many pastors, elders, or overseers then does a church have? Because we said it plural, I'm one of the pastors. Mentioned Jim and Abel. Well, the pattern that we see throughout the New Testament, just without fail, is a plurality of elders, a plurality of pastors within the local church. You flip anywhere. You see who, you see who Paul's writing to? He's writing to the elders. Here in Acts 20, he summons the elders. Or in James 5, verse 14, James writes this, if, any month, if anyone among you is sick, he should call for the elders of the church, plural elders of the church, singular. And they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So you just see over and over the pattern is the same, a plurality then of elders and pastors in every local church. Some of them are paid vocationally to be able to give more time to teaching and preaching and, and leading and serving the church. And some of them are lay, some of them have other jobs. Uh, but they still, each of us, every pastor comes to that table with the same amount of authority. I don't have any extra vote as being the lead pastor. I leave that title at the door whenever I walk into an elders meeting. And me, Jim, and Abel have the exact same authority. I think part of that is God's design to be able to keep one person from kind of taking over the ship. And that's just always a recipe for disaster. And so I am called then to also submit to the elders. There've been a number of times I've been outvoted in those elders meetings and I don't have any extra votes. I submit then to the authority of the elders here. And I think that's God's good design because I believe that he's then given us these gifts to be able to do just that. So how many elders? There is no number, but a plurality, multiple. We wanna see more and more raised up. Paul tells Titus, one of the other pastoral epistles, raise up elders from among you. This is exactly what we want to see happen here. More and more elders, pastors, overseers, or bishops here at our church. So those are the, the clarifications. So now jumping into these two roles, elders and deacons. Elders and deacons. Paul lays out the qualifications here. But also what I want to do is kind of expand a little bit and make sure we see not only the qualifications, but also the responsibilities of each. What is a pastor and elder to do? What is a deacon to do? What are those responsibilities? And then what are the qualifications that then God has laid out? These words and these kind of, these are two words I found to be really helpful in summarizing elders and deacons. David Platt, uh, I saw coined this originally, a pastor in Virginia. Um, he said, elders are servant leaders and deacons are leading servants. Servant leaders and leading servants. I think it's a good kind of categories for us as we walk into this conversation. So first looking at elders, especially here in verse one through seven, Paul says that this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. The Paul says it's a, it's a noble thing to desire that. And then he lays out the qualifications. And then we look then, I wanna begin by seeing what the responsibilities of an elder are. What is a pastor to do? Right, because again, if we kind of think of it, what is a pastor? Is it kind of is it a CEO giving vision statements and leadership and kind of painting the, the future of what he wants to do? Listen, maybe I'm old school, maybe I'm just simple. But when people come to me and ask what my vision is for the church, I just, there's a part of me kind of bristles and I'm like, I, we're just gonna follow Jesus. That's the vision here. We wanna make disciples. That's kind of it. Jesus has laid it out for us. I don't think the church will rise and fall based on what kind of visionary leader that I am. I think we've got a visionary leader and he died on the cross. So let's follow him. Churches that begin to get around one person, I think you're setting yourself again up for failure. But so we see um, that we are given them uh, what our elders to be doing. If they're not CEOs, if they're not just business people making decisions and running an organization, what is an elder to do? Well, three things. I would say an elder, what we see in the scriptures, elders sacrificially lead, 
actively shepherd and faithfully feed. Sacrificially lead, actively shepherd and faithfully feed. I think this summarizes generally the responsibilities that God has given to elders. First, we're called to sacrificially lead. And so God has given, again, elders, pastors, leadership within the church, um, and they are then to model who our leader is and what Jesus has done. And the leadership that Jesus modeled was not someone who stepped into a position of authority and used his leadership in order to benefit himself, making decisions, using people so that he could get the benefit. Jesus didn't use people. He died for people. He laid down his life. And that's what Christian leadership looks like, whether it's in the church, in the home, or in the business place. If you have a job in which you are leading other people, friends, Jesus has set the model for your leadership. We are called to sacrificially lead, to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so as leaders, what that means is here, if you are a Christian and you are a leader, here's what it means, that your life is no longer about you. It's for the good of those around you particularly as to the good of those that you're leading. And that means you need to put to death even preferences within you, things that you have as desires for the good of those around you. We're supposed to have the same mind of that of Christ Jesus who did that exact thing. And so elders are called to sacrificially lead that same kind of mindset, laying our lives down for the good of the people that God has called us to be able to shepherd, to care for, and to lead. In particular, to be able to lead in the direction and the authority of the church. God has given pastors and elders authority within a local church context. Hebrews 13, 17 makes this clear. The author says this, obey your leaders and submit to them. It feels like a strong statement, especially maybe you come from a church where you felt things like this abused. And listen, I know that I'm not um, unwise enough to, know, to think that there are people in here who have been hurt and wounded by the church. And maybe you walk in here weak, maybe you walk in here skeptical, maybe you walk in here and you've heard verses like that used as a weapon against you. But friends, listen, if, if, again, if that's you, I hope this is a church where you can sit and you can hear and see that this church and this leadership is for you. And you take as much time as you need to be able to build back trust within the church. We don't use this as a way to be able to uh, domineer and lord over people that God's given us. This is exactly what First Peter said to shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly to be gentle. And so Hebrews says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Well, why? Well, because they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So that then they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. This is one of the, the two verses in the New Testament that kind of makes me shake a little bit when I realize what I do as a pastor. That I, we have been given, me, Jim Abel's elders in this church, the privilege and the joy, but also the responsibility to keep watch over the souls of this church as those who will give an account. That there's a sense in which one day I'll stand before God to give an account for the way in which I've cared for and shepherded this church. And that terrifies me because I know my limitations and I know my inabilities. There's an old quote that shaped me uh, immensely uh, from John Brown. He's a, an old uh, Puritan pastor, and he was talking to a younger pastor, and he put it this way. This was his advice as an old pastor to a younger pastor. He said, I know the vanity of your heart and that you feel mortified that your congregation is very small in comparison to those of your brethren around you. But assure yourself on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Christ at his judgment seat, you will think that you've had enough. Whenever I see what it is God's called us into as pastors, I'm not in a rush just to grow the thing as quick as we can, but we want to handle it. If God brings growth, praise God. He did it in Acts and thousands were added to the church. That can happen. But I'm not, we're not just trying to generate and create a lot of growth because we see what the church is and what he's called us to do as pastors, to sacrificially lead and to lead then in the direction and authority of this church. But he's also called us to lead by example, leading by our own lives. Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, tells them, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. 1 Peter 5, at the very next verse we read earlier in 5 verse 3, he tells them to be examples to the flock. 
So there is a sense in which we don't want to hold up elders and say, hey, they or Jesus worship them. But there is a sense in which we want to hold up men in the church and say, follow them in as much as they are following Jesus. Imitate them as they imitate Christ. We are to be then examples of the flock in character and love and life and godliness, imperfectly always pointing to our great shepherd, but examples nonetheless. And also called to lead in sacrifice. Again, to lay down our preferences and our lives for the good of those that God has given us. And so that's the first responsibility we see within elders, to sacrificially lead. Secondly, also then, is to actively shepherd. To actively shepherd is one of the responsibilities of the church. And we understand this is that we are called to both know our church, to care for the church, and to protect the church. To act as shepherd. You think about what shepherds did in this time. They were then given to be able to oversee a flock to be able to both care for those that were hurt within the flock, to go and find those that had run away, and to protect the flock from any kind of threat or danger that came. Right? David, the great uh, David who slayed Goliath was a shepherd. You've got stories of him killing lions and bears. You know, sometimes David's painted like this poor little boy that doesn't know what he's doing. He slays Goliath. I'm like, man, David like killed bears. Like David, David needed God's help to defeat Goliath, but he also wasn't just like completely helpless. I haven't killed a bear. I'm no Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio in The Revenant, but David apparently was. And this is part of this image of shepherding that we see God's called pastors to do is to protect, to care, and to know. And so we understand one of the basic understandings of what it means to be a shepherd is that shepherds should smell like sheep. We should be around, involved in the lives of people within our church because we are also a sheep. Because we are not the uh, over shepherd, the head shepherds. We are under shepherds of the great shepherd. And we are also sheep to know and care for, be involved in the lives of our church. We should know who it is that's here. And we should also care. A counseling, caring, knowing, praying. Right? Jesus gives the, the uh, memorable metaphor right before the prodigal son of the shepherd who leaves the 99 safe sheep to go and find the one. I think this models the heart of what a shepherd is. That a lot of our time as shepherds is spent on the fringes. Uh, people who have uh, maybe drifted away, people who are left, or people who are uh, maybe uh, in sin that God's called us to be able to say, hey, we, we care for our church, but we also care for the one. There is no single person that then just goes unnoticed or uncared for and just like, uh, oh, well, we had six people join the church last month, only two left, so net gain, we're good to go. That's not what we understand pastoral ministry to be. We understand God's called us to care for the one, every person who is then here to know, to care, and to protect. To be able to spend time to make sure that false teaching doesn't happen here within the church. We say committed to what God has said. Make sure there's no false living within the church, that people just living openly in sin, that we again are engaged, involved, and following the steps that Jesus gave us in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. And also making sure we spend time then on the fringes, then making sure that there aren't wolves that come in. There isn't false teaching or false living, living that finds its home here. We are called to actively shepherd. And third responsibility of an elder is then to faithfully feed. Right, shepherds would lead their flocks to green pastures, give them food, lead them to where food was. And elders then are given the responsibility to teach, to equip, and then unleash members into ministry. And so we see that one of the qualifications, you must be able to teach as a pastor. Not only here on Sundays, but also in contexts like Sunday school classes or um, community groups or Bible studies or just coffee and lunch or having people over. The ability to be able to teach, to then be able to equip and raise up people within the church. And so we understand in Ephesians 4, God has given the church the gift of pastors and teachers to be able to equip the church for the work of ministry. This is the grid in which we understand this whole thing operates. We are not here to take ministry from you. We are here to equip the saints for the work of ministry. As then we all arm in arm are gospel partners. We are partners in grace. This is how Paul described the church in Philippi. He says we're partners here. God's given each of us different roles, different gifts, different things that we're doing. And we are here to partner together to see this work go forward. So we want to teach, to equip, and then unleash you to do the work of the ministry. Right, if you're here and you've come with a ministry idea or something, you can attest to this. Because what is my response? Anyone tell someone comes to me and says, hey, I think it'd be great if our church did this. Here's my response. I'm so glad God is calling you to be able to lead that. 
And that functionally comes back to this, as I'm saying, we don't want to take ministry from you. And if God's put in your heart a desire for it and the eyes to see it, part of that is we understand he's calling you to be able to step into leadership in that ministry. And we want to come help to offer support, resources, and anything else we can do to help get that ministry happening. We don't want to take it. We want to equip and unleash. So those are responsibilities we see of an elder, of a pastor. So what then are the qualifications? And that gets us then to these seven verses, the qualifications of a pastor. Well, I want to first note what's not on this list. You didn't see anything about how old they needed to be. Nothing about age. Thankfully, I'm, I'm not the eldest in this room or the oldest in this room, but I don't think that that's what Paul has in mind when he thinks of an elder, just someone who's old. There's also, you didn't see anything about having business success. Kind of just being a successful person in life. Uh, in some churches, it feels like where if you're a successful businessman or lawyer or community uh, worker, then you've kind of earned the right to be able to step in and give that kind of leadership to the church. But that's strangely absent entirely in these qualifications. And you also don't say anything about likability, how cool the guys are, how easy they are to hang around, whether or not you like them. Those are all not in the qualifications. But what is on the list? If you listened as Tim read through, you notice that the vast majority of them deal with one thing, with character. It's not skill, it's not competency, it's godliness, it's character. This is uh, what's most striking to me also about the characters, they're, they're fairly ordinary character traits, traits that every single Christian should strive for. D.A. Carson noted before, New Testament scholar, that these are extraordinarily ordinary qualifications. They are extraordinarily ordinary. Something that we should all strive for, to be self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. These are the qualifications. Now, there are two that are unique amongst Christians, and those two is they shouldn't be a recent convert. And the one skill that is placed in there is they must be able to teach. Everything else you see, though, deals with character and personal life. And again, that goes back to understanding what the role is. It's not a business leader. It's not a visionary. It's a godly man given to shepherd, care, know, protect, and feed the flock that God has given them and appointed them to. You see not only then the relationship personally, but you also see some family uh, qualifications and family life that was in there as well. And so questions to ask as elders, is he the elder in his own home? If he's single, is he self-controlled? If he's married, is he completely committed to his wife? If he has children, do they honor him? We see then this relationship of uh, the home and the church as well as Paul lays out these qualifications. And we can't get into all the nuances of what that means, husband of one wife. What does that mean that he has to be married? Does he have to have children? What if he's divorced? What if he's been remarried? Again, those are longer conversations that we'll talk about some tonight. Again, so another shameless plug for tonight. Come back at 5 p.m. But I want to move on now and see this second category. As Paul's laid out then elders, these servant leaders. Paul now shifts and says, here's now the second office within the church as deacons as leading servants. So before going into the qualifications, again, I want to spend some time on the responsibility of deacons. Now with deacons, there isn't as much clarity in the New Testament about what the office and role should actually look like. We don't have as many verses specifically talking about it. Uh, churches vary church to church as far as what the role actually entails. For us, we kind of see a large springboard um, in the chapter, in the book of Acts in chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, especially verses 1 through 4, we see this relationship formed and these men put forward um, in leadership within the church that gives us what we understand to be the model for the relationship between elders and deacons and gives us kind of a proto-deacon. So they aren't named as deacons. The word that's translated as deacon is used in Acts 6. But we believe them to be kind of a foundation for what the deacon ministry should be. So in Acts chapter 6, if you want to flip there, I'm going to read quickly. Um, if you don't, you can just listen. But Acts chapter 6 verses one through four, helps shape out what these responsibilities look like for the office of deacon. The author writes this, in those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, 
there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. So pause, here's what's happening. The church is young. It's just gotten started in Acts 2, Pentecost. Um, thousands are added to the church and there's already disruption within the church. There is a complaint that's been issued by the church from two different groups, from the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews, from the Greek-speaking Jews to the Hebrew-speaking Jews, divided by culture and ethnicity. There is this division within the church. And the complaint is this, that one particular group was getting favoritism in regards to the daily distribution of food. These widows that were speaking Hebrew were getting more than the widows that were speaking Greek. There's a division in the early church. Well, here is then the apostles' answer. The 12 then summoned the whole company of disciples and said, quote, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. So brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom you can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so the apostles' solution as they gather disciples together is this. They say, listen, we don't need to give up what God has called us to, preaching the word, to be able to wait on tables. It's a real need. It's a real ministry need that's dividing the church and hindering ministry. We've got to address it, but it's not right for us to address it. So we've got to find others within the church who can then step in and do this so that we can devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And there we see this relationship between this one group and another group in which one steps in to serve in a real task ministry specific need so that then the apostles can devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We understand that relationship is the same relationship that we see between elders and deacons. The deacons then step in to, to, uh, to serve the church, minister the church in a task specific area so that the elders then are freed up to continue to do what God has called us to do particularly a really succinct summary to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Again, nothing about being a CEO or visionary statements in there. Prayer and the ministry of the word. That's the elevated simplicity of pastoral ministry, I believe. And so this is then what was instituted, brought together, and the result in verse seven was that the word of God spread and the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. That's the result then of these offices working together is that the word of God spread and disciples increased. That's the result whenever these offices then are functioning and working together. So for us, we see then the responsibilities of deacons are task specific and they're ministry and service oriented. They're task specific and they're ministry and service oriented. Whenever this issue arose in the early church, it arose because there was a specific task that needed to be addressed. Waiting on tables, distributing food. Incredibly important within the church. It divided the church. People who needed help weren't getting help. And you think about too, all the administration that went along with that task. Right, we hear it, maybe we just imagine like people who are servers or waiters just taking food to tables. There was a lot more than that. They had to know the list of all the widows within the church. They had to be able to figure out how much food to be able to purchase then for each of those. They had to take the money that was given to the church, make sure they could cover it. They had to send people to go and get that food, bring it back, store it somehow, make sure to communicate then with the widows when they could come and get it and make sure that all of it was running smoothly, food wasn't spoiling and the complaint could be addressed so the word of God could spread and disciples could increase. It was heavily administrative and if they had Excel spreadsheets, I'm pretty sure they would have used um, the mess out of them here in Acts chapter 6. And so one of the things too, which I always point out in this story is that sometimes we can feel like administration is kind of like the necessary evil so that ministry can happen. I'll do this thing kind of behind the scenes or administration so that ministry can happen. But friends, what I hope you see in Acts 6 is that administration is ministry. Without administration, the ministry of Acts isn't happening, not only to the church that needed help, but also the ministry of the apostles as the word of God continued to spread. God has given each and every person in his church a unique skill set, a unique design, a unique passion to be able to come together as a body with lots of different members. This is the, this is the me uh, metaphor that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 14. There's lots of members in this body that's used then to build up the church. 
And Paul says, what if an eye was sitting there going, boy, I wish I was more like an ear or a nose going, man, I just wish I was more like the hand. They could like grab stuff and like move things around. They've got opposable thumbs. That's great. I'm just a nose. But what if, and Paul's like, what would the benefit be if the whole body were a nose? It'd, it'd be weird. Like those old sinus commercials. You remember the old Flonase commercials where like the, there was just like one big nose walking around and then you take Flonase and then you're good again. But Paul's saying that's what happens if we look at others and go, I wish I was more like them. God is saying, no, I've made you exactly how I meant to. I didn't leave out any parts whenever I formed and knit you in your mother's womb. And I have a specific purpose and design for you, particularly now within the local church, to be able to build up the body and glorify the head, which is Christ. So that's the way in which this all happens. And we see the unique beauty of administration here as ministry. And it was given specifically towards a task. So these weren't just deacons to be able to just do a bunch of things or just deacons as an honorary title. They were named deacons to address this specific task. And so for us, we create a diaconal position whenever those two things are in place, a specific need and then a qualified person to fill that need. There are deacon qualified people in our church that aren't deacons. That's not because they're not qualified. It's because there isn't a specific need then to fill that task. It's not an honorary title just thrown out to people. You know, once you're, once you're a member here for 15 years, we'll make you a deacon and give you a, a, a gold ring. That's not, that's not how the office works. But when there's a specific need, and a qualified person to fill that needs, then deacon position is created. Because we see it's task specific. The need is required. The second thing we see about the responsibility of the diaconate, it's also geared towards ministry and service. Functionally within the office, it's geared towards ministering and serving the body. Often administratively, but not solely. This is the word itself. It comes from the Greek word diakonos. And that word is often translated as ministering. Right, there's the, the famous scene in the Gospels when Jesus is tempted by Satan. He withstands that temptation. He'd fasted for 40 days. And after that, it says angels came and ministered to him. That word ministered is the word diakonos. And so we understand um, intrinsically within the word itself, it's geared towards ministry and service. And so this plays itself out by then leading, particularly ministry teams, that takes away any, um, any elders from the ministry of the word or prayer. So whenever there are times in our lives that we find we're giving our time a lot to a specific thing that's pulling us away, whether from preparing for sermons, meeting with people, praying together, then we go, is there a qualified person to step into this role so we can continue to devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer? So that's kind of the lens that we look towards um, towards those ministries or service opportunities. So this looks a number of different ways. It may look in the future like helping organize and manage the care of our members, organizing hospital visits, meals, etc. It may, like it currently does, have someone leading our setup and teardown teams, making sure that the pipe and drape goes up, that chairs are out for you to sit in. If you don't care about that, I can tell them to stop. We can shut the position down. We can stand the whole time and sit on the floors if we'd like. But what we see is that here in this role, he's here, Craig in particular, over our ops team to make sure this is set up so that then I'm not worried about volunteers who are coming, making sure it's set up, uh, making sure the chairs are there, but functionally and particularly serving this church through ministry and service and a particular need. Making sure communion supplies are ordered or volunteers are scheduled to pass out the elements or the baptism logistics are taken care of. Each of these times when there's something that pops up that's taking us away, that's where we see this area. One of the specific ways this happened as well was with social media. I was spending like five to seven hours a week making sure we had social media that was going out, graphics were made, communication was going out for our church. And I just, man, I was like, man, I, this is like a black hole. It's important, I think, for our church to know what's happening, but I'm spending so much time here. So we understood this relationship in Acts 6. We go, well, this is taking me away from the ministry of word and prayer. We have a qualified person and they stepped in to become the, the deaconess of social media. I'm sure that's not what Paul had in mind when he wrote 1 Timothy 3. There was going to be deacons of social media. But nonetheless, this is how we understand it all to play out and why we then put this then in place here within our church. So deacons are, uh, deacons are here to support the ministry of the word and prayer, to support ministry. Deacons serve so elders can lead. And so again, you notice what's not in the responsibilities. 
having authority overneath the church. So the deacon board is not a deliberative board. The deacon board doesn't meet to make decisions. Our, our whole deacons don't actually even meet together as a board. Uh, but they exist to serve another massively important role within the church to minister and serve the church uh, in specific areas. Uh, deacons are not an executive board that exists to balance out the power of the senior pastor. Again, I don't know what your kind of church background has been. This is often how the deacons kind of uh, play out. Uh, a bunch of kind of old crotchety men that exist to make sure the power uh, that the senior pastor doesn't get kind of too uh, into himself. And we got to make sure we, we, we set the record straight. We speak for the church and kind of keep him in check, functioning almost like the house of representatives and the executive branch, the judicial branch, kind of like this balance of power. That's how the deacon board exists. But we don't see that within the responsibilities or within the qualifications. We don't see authority that's been given to this office. We also don't see teaching. Uh, that qualification is removed, being able to teach. It's a service-oriented office and not a teaching office. This is why for us, as we have deacons overseeing our, our worship ministry and our kids' ministry, as elders, we're still very involved in the teaching of both of those. Picking out curriculum, what it is we're going to be teaching, we're involved with that. We want to be able to empower our leaders to lead, but we also see God's given us the responsibility to oversee the teaching and umbrellas uh, ministries of this church. And with worship, we understand worship is a teaching ministry. Goodness, songs are sermons that people actually remember. Um, that's what music is. I think it's incredibly powerful. It's given us so much true and good theology, who God is, who we are. And so Garrett and I sit down every week looking at the sermon, figuring out what songs to sing, what songs we're introducing. We're involved in that because we understand the diacon is not a teaching office. It's a serving office. And lastly, notice what's not in the responsibilities. It's not a stepping stone to becoming an elder. It's in the farm system for the pastors in the church. It's not the double A, triple A, and then you get good enough that you move up to be an elder or a pastor. It's an entirely separate office. Now, as you look then, you see the qualifications that Paul lays out and you hear the similar emphasis on character, the emphasis on godliness, to be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, proved first and proved to be blameless. And also in relationship to the family, if, if married, is he completely committed to his wife? And if he has children, do they honor him? And so again, I can't spend time on each one of those qualifications, but the main thing to highlight is you see it's focused not on skill or ability or business acumen, but on godliness and character. Now, the final question uh, we've got to answer, and we'll address it even more uh, tonight, but the question of what about women then as deacons? Uh, this, is a, this is a question that's divided amongst churches, uh, people I look up to and respect um, that love the Bible um, and believe it to be God's word, disagree on this issue. And a lot of it comes down to that verse in verse 12. In chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says, uh, or verse 11, excuse me, Wives, likewise, should be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful in everything. And that word, wives, if you look at your Bible, it's got a little footnote next to it. And down on the bottom, it will say, are women. That's because that's the exact same word that's used, both as wives or women. What determines the translation of the word is the context of it. There's no different word there. So it's both wives or women. So the question is, is Paul here in verse 11 laying out qualifications, not just for deacons, but also for deacons' wives? Or is he now giving qualifications also for women that operate and serve as deacons? Well, that's the question. Again, it's divided. What I want to do just briefly is give the reasons why we believe that God has this office for women to be able to serve. And we have both men and women deacons here at the church. Again, first, we see that word wise is also translated as women. It's dictated by the context. Secondly, there is no there in the Greek. So your Bible may say their wives, likewise their wives. Uh, that word there is not in the Greek. Now, some may say it's implied by the context, understandable, but it's not there. It is just wives or it is just women. Because he does give in the very next verse um, that they are to manage their children and their own households competently. So he uses the word there, but not in verse 11. Third, we understand there's nothing intrinsic in our understanding of what the office of deacon is that would prohibit women from serving freely in God's design for men and women um, for the ministry of the church. 
Again, so what we looked at last week is Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach or to have authority. We see both of those wrapped up in the office of elder, functionally what that office is. But we don't see that in the office of deacon. It's not an authoritative office. We don't understand it to be a teaching office. It's ministry and service. So there's nothing intrinsic that Paul's pointing back to the created order to say that women wouldn't be allowed to serve in this role. Uh, fourth, he also uses that word likewise there. So what he uses in verse eight when he shifts to a different office, he goes through the qualifications of elders. And then verse eight says, deacons likewise should be worthy of respect. So he shifts here. Verse 11, he does the same thing. Wives or women likewise. It seems like he's not to me giving then another uh, um, qualifications for deacon wives, but is now shifting for a, uh, a, a deaconess ministry then within the church. Fifth, we have an example of what seems to be Phoebe in Romans chapter 16, verse one. Uh, Paul says, I commend to you, writing to the church in Rome, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church in Sincrea. That word servant is that same word diakonos that's used to be translated as deacon. Is that an official office? Uh, it's not entirely clear, but it seems to be. She is a servant of the church in Sincrea. Um, Paul seems to point that out. Phoebe seems to be a deaconess then within that church. And lastly, the question uh, that we have is why then would there be qualifications Paul would give for deacon wives and not for elder wives? If the office of elder is given for the overall leadership and oversight of the church, who will one day have to give an account for what God has then given them to shepherd, um, would not there be an expectation that there be qualifications for their wives and then not for deacons? Why would Paul give qualifications in for the wives of deacons and not for elders? So all that to say, we put all that together to be able to say here within our church, we see the way that these offices and roles then work together. We have women that we want to encourage to serve within those roles, not teaching or having authority, but serving and ministering to the church as a whole, to be able to see the gifts that God's given us within uh, this realm, to be able to see um, God's grace continue to grow here in our church. Now, I will say there are some churches I've been a part of, again, where deacons are functionally elders. I wouldn't have women then serving there, but I'm not talking about other churches. I'm talking about ours and trying to wrestle with what God has said about these offices. And so we see then these qualifications and responsibilities uh, given out. And it's how we see it all work together. So that may just feel like a bunch of, uh, Caleb, it feels like you just read like part of your constitution for us. Again, why does this matter? I think it matters, again, because the church isn't simply a spiritual organization that's meant to just hit growth metrics like a business. We're not just checking, giving reports and attendance records. I heard one pastor say that the church gets caught up with nickels and noses and looking to see how many people are there, how much is given. Always looking, being driven by that. If it's going down, it's bad. We need something to get it back up. But friends, I don't know about you. When you read the Bible, don't you often see when people are walking faithfully, God's kingdom begins to shrink. That's not always a bad thing. Often it's getting healthier. Um, whenever Elisha said he was the only one, God said, no, man, I've got a remnant of hundreds of people still. And guess what? God's kingdom was not annihilated then. In fact, it's now continuing to spread around. So even as we enter, I think, a time where the church is going to begin to shrink numerically, let me just say, we're not um, tied to and married to our success as a church based on how many people are coming to church. God's called us to be faithful. Sometimes that means more people will come. Sometimes it means that we won't. That doesn't mean we have to try to generate that growth. And just because people may be leaving the church doesn't mean that we're failing. The question is, are we doing what God's called us to do and then trusting him with the rest? Because right, this is what he's told us to do, plant and water. And what does he promise to do? Give the growth. I think often we want to give the growth. We want to make it happen. We want to see it come. And so we get caught up with those metrics. That's not what a church is. And the pastor shouldn't be the visionary leader like a nonprofit CEO and deacons shouldn't be the board that acts as a balance of power to that visionary because the church is an organization, but it is also an organism, a group of local Christians committed to one another. The church is a family. Again, like we said last week, a family and a church needs fathers and it needs mothers. It needs brothers and it needs sisters. The church is a flock and it's meant to be shepherded, cared for, served and led because we see how much Jesus loves her. Do you hear it again in Acts 20, verse 28, what we read at the very beginning? It says that Jesus purchased her with his own blood. 
And whenever we see that, all of this radically affects then what the life in a local church looks like. It directs us as pastors to where we should spend our time. It helps us see that a member that is retained is just as valuable as a member that is gained. It makes sure that we aren't just concerned about the bottom line and trying to get a net gain, but we're concerned about the one that God has given us. And it gives us order and clarity within our local church to be able to focus on the exact thing that the early church in Acts 6 did, to be able to see the word of God spread and disciples in Jerusalem increase greatly in number. We are not here to just try to be the most right. We are here to make disciples. We can sometimes get this flipped. We love to argue about what the Bible says. We want to be the most theologically right and the most consistent. And sometimes if we aren't careful, we can enter into conversations like this, get consumed in that argument and kind of lead making disciples on the side. But what Acts 6 showed us is that all of this falls underneath the mission that God has called us to as Jesus stands before all of us and tells us, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's our mission. And what we see in this conversation in 1 Timothy 3 with the governing and ordering of the church is that we want to care about it so that we can see that happen, so that we can see the word of God spread and disciples increase. That's what we want to see. His word spread further throughout this city and deeper within our hearts. We want to see both disciples made and disciples formed and grown. We want to see the name of Jesus lifted high in this community. And what we see in the New Testament is that in order to do that, we need to make sure that we are doing God's work and not our own. But we also need to see that we are doing it his way. And so God gives us then this order to be able to see and encourage us to be able to follow him in the way that he's given it so that we can see his word spread and disciples made. Let's pray. God, we are, again, so in need of your grace. God, and I know that things like this have often been used to wound people. So God, if there's someone here that's been hurt, I pray that you would just, God, give grace to them. God, help them to, to see our church as a church that they can heal and rest and ask questions and process. God, we wanna be open and as long as possible to be able to see and care for and have conversations about who you are and why this is good and not something to fear. And God, help us as a church, again, to be committed to your word. God, in, the, in a world that's running away from what you've said, help us be able to see that what you've said is good. It's nothing to be ashamed of. But God, by embracing it, we see it actually leads then to the flourishing of men and women in the church and families and communities and around the world. God, help us to be like Jesus, to follow his example, to follow his model, and that we would always be looking to serve, follow, know, treasure, and obey him. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen.